0: can we talk about Fern and, and what what she represents but who she is in in the novel a little bit um, there's an in- incredibly powerful uh, again recurring motif I think all motifs recur of same, not same and this idea of, of how we as humans view the the rest of the world. Well, at university, I think I was remembering Self and Other. Lots of, I wrote lots of essays about Self and Other. Self and Other. And got, you got good
1: marks. Um, somebody handed this to me a couple of days no. ago. Isn't that lovely? Oh, I did a reading. And this is this the red poker somebody chip? Somebody gave me a red poker chip. <laughs> I can't look at the red poker chip. It's going to set me off. I think, you know. There's an inevitable but probably unacknowledged examination of the child as well, because it's a sort of compare and contrast. You know, what can the chimp do at 12 months, and what can the child do at 12 months? What can the chimp do at 13 months, and what can the child do at 13 months? Um, Rosemary sees pretty clearly that she was also the subject of the experiment, but I do not think that her parents understood what that would mean or what that would mean for her exactly one of the um one of the questions i was asking myself in the novel which i did still have not answered and as someone expecting your first child is a question i posed to you as well <laughs> um, which is sort of um how normal do you want your child's childhood to be? Is the best thing you can do for a child to absolutely norm them? Or do you want them to have kind of incredible adventures and um, and an in- interesting childhood? So Rosemary has had a very interesting childhood, but the it, the effects have not been
0: um, what where a parent dr-
1: might have hoped for.
0: Well, I was going to ask, where do we draw the line between Fern and say, her father in terms of to, to rewind, I read Rosemary's narrative, some of it's a, tra- a traumatized narrative, those extraordinary scenes at sort of Thanksgiving, um, Christmas, uh, The and it did make me feel uncomfortable about the expectations um, for raising a child, and, and what's child rearing and childish experimentation?
1: I thought about that question a lot. You know, in the end, um, perhaps, as parents at least, um, perhaps it's a question that's not really used useful to pose because the childhood is going to be what the childhood is and you have some impact on it but not as much as you might hope you know there will be many many people dealing with that child and did Rosemary's
0: father in any way see it as actually advantageous for her was he actually more interested in in
1: I think that yeah I think that that he did not see it as advantageous for Rosemary so much as he saw, he imagined the impact on Rosemary would be a fairly neutral one. And he, he, he was interested in Fern. Um, it's, you know, the, the whole premise of the book, I think, would feel quite preposterous and, and kind of surreal, if there hadn't been actual experiments which did these things. And um, and one of the amazing things that has happened to me since the book came out is that a woman who was in the original family on which I based the experiment has gotten in touch with me. She's written me about three times. She was born the year after the experiment ended in her family, so she you know, certainly has no recollection of it. Her brother, who was the subject of the experiment, stopped when it, he, he was like... 16 or 19 months so he obviously also has no recollection of it and and she made it pretty clear that she was not going to read my book um although the letters were you know very friendly very nice and uh, she said you know I realized from the reviews this must be based on our family experiment um and she clearly just wanted to say some things about the experiment and she said that it had destroyed her family but as she went into detail it was not clear to me that the experiment had destroyed the family, or having the kind of father who would do that experiment had destroyed the family. But that you know, there are are some things that we know now that we didn't know um, when these experiments were done, uh, and one of them is how imitative human children are. So that you cannot put a child in such close proximity to a chimp. In many ways, um, you know, Fern is arguably one of the um, people that Rosemary spent the most of her formative years with without the child's brain being actually physically, geographically affected by that fact.
0: And how, so how for you does this impact on on Rosemary?
1: Well, this was the part, you know, that, that I had to imagine and that um, I, I worked very hard to try to imagine what it might be like to now be that person who, um, you know, who who as a child had certain chimp behaviors and certain chimp inclinations and, um, and imitated a chimp sister. Uh, but the sort of larger issue to me is that I think that we all wonder from time to time how normal we are. Um, you know, I hope that's not just me. Either. Sometimes you're at a dinner party and you say something and there's a startled silence and you think, oh, right, so we don't all feel that way then. Um, you know, Roseberry just has more cause than most to... Uh, and, and a childhood of, um, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a sort of bullying because... Um, because the other, there is something different about her and, and other children are very, very quick to pick that up.
0: Is this, this idea of imitation, is our problem with that that it challenges this whole idea that humanity is somehow natural and our, our you know, perce- perception of our superiority to the the birds, the bees and, and everything else is perhaps something that we're, we're not entirely born with, that learning is... And that we're not these original, unique individuals entirely. It just, it gives us a little, it should give us a little pause at that.
1: I think it's long past time for us (laughs) to take that little pause. But yes, you know, certainly this is, uh, you know, I am old enough to have lived through several iterations of um, what the difference between humans and the other animals are. You know, when I was young, um, humans were the tool using animals. That was... Um, that was what we were taught. Easy phrase, easy distinction. Problem being that so many animals use tools. That um, as observation from the field came in, it became less and less possible to maintain that that was the difference. And then for a long time, language was the difference. And that's still a very contested area. There's still a lot of there's still a lot of belief around that idea. But um, but again, you know, the more we study. When we stopped trying to study how well animals could be taught to communicate with us and began to look instead at how they communicate with each other, um, you find animals with a f- certain kinds of animals have a very high level of detail in the information that they can convey to each other. There appears to be syntax in certain animal communications it's It's hard to see exactly where the difference between what we are doing right now Um, and uh, prairie dogs (laughs) to pull an example from the air do when they talk to each other and they apparently are capable of, of sounding an alarm when a person is approaching that lets the other prairie dogs in the area know how big the person is, what color shirt the person is wearing and whether they are carrying a gun or not.
0: Wow. That makes them more intelligent than quite, <laughs> quite a lot of people I know. But, uh, Rosemary's brother, Lowell, uh, responds very differently to the childhood um, and becomes uh, radicalised, I suppose, is one uh, sort of sensational way to put it. Um, becomes politically active, activated. Um, I was wondering about... Uh, about the the place of vivisection and the way you portray it and discuss it in in the novel, and how that related to that that central. This is something you feel very strongly about as you were researching the novel. Was it something you really wanted to be in the story?
1: Well, I, yes. You know, I um, again, I, I wanted um, I wanted to look as closely as I could at our relationship to and use of our fellow animals on the planet. Um, uh, and I wanted to be fair, you know, there's, um, I think that that we have changed quite recently a lot of our attitudes towards um, the other animals based on the kind of experiments that, um, that I often find problematic, that, you know, the fact that we know more about how prairie dogs communicate is, I think, you know, all to the good and will have a, a hopefully beneficial impact on how we deal with other animals. So, so you know, my feelings about a lot of the experiments are very, very mixed. But, um, but the casualness with which animals have been used and discarded is very troubling to me, um, in the food industries as well as uh, the scientific scientific research. Um, find it very troubling when they are involved in our wars war horse just almost unendurable to me why why must the horses go to war um, although in point of fact why must the soldiers yeah. go to war it's all um, but i think my strongest feeling is that we should not do things we cannot bear to look at and if it all has to be hidden away from us in order to go on, then it shouldn't shouldn't be happening. And, um, I just wrote a, a, a squib for a blog on the issue of vivisection, because one of the things that I came across when I was doing the research was uh, an account of the brown dog riots. Are you familiar no. with these at all? It happened in Battersea in 1906. Oh. And uh, two Swedish anti-vivisectionists two women went undercover into the one of the London Medical um, teaching universities and watched a, a vivisection and then um, wrote about it. And as a result, there was a statue put up in Battersea of a brown dog, which starts sort of like in honor of the dog done to death in the labs. And, and the medical students were furious. And they... Um, announced destruction on the brown dog statue and it ended up in with months of rioting 24-hour mm-hmm. police protection on this statue um, and um, and a, a strangely broad coalition of people supporting the anti-vivisectionists so the labor union the suffragists the fabians the um, the Marxists the trade unionists all, you know, all co- coalesced around this statue, and the only people on the other side appeared to have been the medical students. <laughs> and yet, when it was all over, um, the game was somehow lost. You know, the 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 use that's very casual use of animals in medical research just continued wi- without that kind of outcry anymore. It, it kind of disappeared from view, but. Was as if the whole issue was settled.
0: Is that because it's in our own interest? I mean, we feel we're terribly sad that, that these animals, ha- but but ultimately, self human self interest again wins the day.
1: That well, that yes, and sure. you know, I, you know, I certainly don't count myself outside that paradigm. If it's my child, and you know, some lab research animal, I'm not going to have a hard time making a decision. But having said that, I am going to want to know that the research actually is beneficial, that, that, that the level of suffering has been reduced as much as possible. And, um, and I'm not convinced now that, or I, I guess I should say I'm hopeful now, that with computer modeling we will not ever even have to persuade ourselves that these things are in our interest, that there will be other ways to do it. Having said that, you know, the whole this whole um, uh, idea that we can... Concocted meat now in a lab, and it will never have been an animal. Is sort of a deeply creepy one, too. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's an awful things, isn't it? You don't, perhaps we don't always want to think about where our meat has yeah. been. But I like the idea of it having been <laughs> somewhere. Um, I'll hit with the Bob Dylan quote now, which was um, from that song, which uh, I still can't pronounce for some reason. Love, mind zero. Um, ideals and violence, and that does seem to be. I was wondering about this in terms of Lowell and, and his father. Uh, where, where are we justified in in terms of representing our ideals? And this again feels like a very American, a great moment to be discussing these sorts of of issues.
1: I expect um, again that this is an issue that I have thought about a lot, and not necessarily with regard to this novel. That I, you know, that I came up. Through college in the 1960s, and so I was part of. Uh, I I was too young to participate, but um, old enough to watch and care a great deal about the civil rights movement, which is you know the great moral movement of my time in the United States, um, and uh, and studied Gandhi and nonviolence when I was in college. Um, so uh, uh, yes, I am always. Very interested in sort of um, the costs of political activism and the costs of no political activism. And um, uh, one of the things that has always struck me is that um, that the families of the great political activists generally pay a price that you're, you're often not taking really good care of your own children um, and yet
0: Well Lowell has that doesn't he that he sacrifices almost He sacrifices
1: everything sort of yeah pretty much um, I thought
0: of another Dylan quote actually to, to live outside the law uh, you must be honest there's something about there's a purity about Lowell but in some ways I almost felt the frustration about it. it's a bit of a cop out he can just cut every tie off he doesn't have to deal with his own complicity in what in the family life, he he still sort of blames Rose. I, he does, I yeah. admired him and, and sort of wanted to smash him over the head at the same time. <laughs> uh.
1: I don't think in his defence, um, as as with most of the members of the family, I think they made a lot of decisions believing they would be temporary decisions and not understanding that they would be permanent ones. That That I think he, you know, when he... Um, goes off, he's very, very angry and um, involves himself in some things that but expects to come home, expects that he will come home and then finds that he can.
0: Can I just uh, to pass in the last little section, just, which I'm really fascinated by was to, is to think about your own the relation of literature and, 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 and your own relation of writing that comes out of this novel, which was a little bit I was wondering is there a, is there a way a parallel between you and and the idea of the the, the father in the novel the, the novelist who has the set of characters that you push about uh, manipulate a little bit there's a, the, novel writing is a, a creative uh, activity, but there 's something of the experiment you can toy with your uh, <laughs> your creations. Uh, do appalling things to them. Um, yes, this leaves... is
1: one of the great joys of being a writer.
0: <laughs> where does that leave you at the at the end of it?
1: Uh, you know, pretty much in control. I, <laughs> I hear so many writers say, and, and these are writers that I trust completely, so I believe they are giving me their clear sense of what it's like for them to write a novel. And they say things like, well, you know, I wanted the character... To go left, but they went right, or you know, the character. I just I started hearing a voice. You know, somebody just started telling me a story, um, or the characters came to life, and um, and I just I'm so filled with loathing for my own characters when I hear that because they do nothing of the sort. They they help me out in no way at all. I'm always left to their own devices. They would do nothing but drink coffee and complain about their lives. I'm always having to say right. Let's get up. Let's go out. <laughs> how about you say this now? And how about you answer that? So
0: So this like, almost a nurturing nature. There's something, this this dream you have of creativity has being this instinctive, beyond my control. So um, my, actually, no, not it's for you're me. The, Not for me. Was there a parallel, a slight parallel with that, the, 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 with the, the father scientist setting up this premise, following it through, and perhaps then it... it Going off the rails. Does Did does that? Did that? Ch- did, did you find a? Uh, did you empathize with him in that term? Not not in any moral term, but
1: um. I empathize with the father enormously in all sorts of ways. One of the um, surprises to me, and I said earlier, how once you publish the book, then you just have to sit back and let people tell you about it. But the antipathy towards the father in some reviews I've read has taken me by surprise because I think of him as quite a well-meaning. Um, it clearly made some very bad decisions but I don't think of him as a terrible person or even a terrible father um, but yes um, I can see uh, I, I can definitely see the parallels for the novelist that you, you create a situation you push people about you, um, and it all ends in a catastrophe all, all too often the experience of the novel writer the fortunate thing about being the novel writer is, then you can do it again. You can say, "All right, well that that chapter didn't work out very well. Let's let's make a different decision. Let's rewrite it." What have the
0: responses to this book been like? I mean, I'm sort of curious to see, to to, to know. Is this the book that would really churn people up in all sorts?
1: The you know the reviews have been amazing. They've been um, so good so so much better than i could ever have dreamt i've heard from some readers that the book is just too harrowing which i apologize for as i said i tried to make it very funny (laughs) parts of it are very funny
0: Christ, his family, his future, and now his freedom. He is not as more would have wanted, the worst of men. Lowell's life has been the direct result of his very best qualities, of our very best qualities. Empathy, compassion, loyalty, and love, that needs to be recognised. I thought... What well, I was curious about this, this is a novel about, about finding empathy and love. Um, I was wondering, is that something for you that fiction helps us with?
1: Absolutely. I had a, a very interesting experience... Um, with so it was my third novel which came out and I was scheduled to do a reading um, uh, on September 12th of the of, of the September 11th year and so um, or maybe it was I guess it was September 13th so I called the bookstore and um, and I said look you know nobody's going to be interested in my novel took place in the 1890s and involved San Francisco in the Gilded Age, uh, you know, I just can't see that anybody is going to be in the mood um, to come and hear me. So, you know, let's cancel. And they said, you know, please don't, because the rest of their schedule was riders coming in from the East Coast. I live in California, and the planes were all down. So no other writer on their schedule was going to make their appearance, because I was driving, I was the only one who could and they said you know i th- i think so i think there will be an audience and so i went and um and it turned out to really be one of the most wonderful evenings uh in terms of those kinds of events there maybe 15 people showed up which is not huge but it's not humiliating and um and they did clearly just want to get away from the television and think about other things. And we didn't really talk about my book. We talked about the role of fiction in their lives and in um, you know in a world where where these catastrophic things can happen. Um, and there are many, many, many nonfiction books to read. And many people I meet tell me that they don't read fiction; that they only read nonfiction. Why? why people pick up nonfiction books and so i heard 15 answers to that question and they were all really interesting um one of them was um that fiction is a place where you can sort of practice certain emotions in a safe place then if you ever actually need them in your life you will you will have that practice behind you um and, you know, um, somebody said, um, much along the lines of what you're saying, that, you know, it just allows you to experience a, v- a very large world that you can imagine uh, in a way that nonfiction is too circumspect to imagine the interior lives of people undergoing d- different sorts of experiences. And uh, they all, I think, in the end felt that if for a novel to be good it has to feel true, which is of course the, the paradox that you've told lie after lie after lie and yet it doesn't work if at the end it doesn't seem like that's all been in the surface of something true. It
0: has fiction been a way for you to imagine these sort of other experiences, these experiences very different from your own, yes. is that what you've always
1: Yes, yes, that's as, as I said earlier That my initial impulse is to try to imagine what it would be like not to be me there's you know it's not um it's not as clean as that sounds because Mm -hmm. in order to get there i have to kind of imagine what i would be like under different circumstances so you know we change my history we change my genetic inclinations um and, and i try to transform into somebody else but um but since the baseline is still me, it's not as clear.
0: What happens to you in those times when you're you're in the middle of writing something, and do you actually lose a sense of yourself? I, mean? I
1: you know, I sometimes I absolutely do. Not as often as I would like to. Um, well, a lot of writing a book is just the slog that you know you don't really have the inspiration today, and yet. The pages are not writing themselves. The characters are not coming to life and writing the story for you. Um, so yes, you know, I think, uh, you know, you're making me think of of some of those experiments where rats um, push levers in order to get little hits of some kind of um, drug-induced ecstasy that, you know, probably me writing a novel is very similar to that, that every once in a while I get that hit, and it's enough to make me think, right, I'll just keep going and that will happen again.
0: I confess I knew from the, 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 the Jane Austen. I was imagining some people going to buy it who love that book, which I think is much spikier and, and odder than perhaps. Um, uh,
1: it's been given. Yeah, I think so too. Do
0: you need to go to lots of different things? Is that? I,
1: I would lose interest <laughs> if I wasn't able to, you know, change gears dramatically. Uh, my friend, uh, uh, a writer, Pat Murphy, recently gave a lecture that I went to. The lecture was called "Why Be Miserable," and, and she, so she was facing a lot of uh, audience of aspiring writers, and she was addressing just this issue. That um, she has a background in marketing, so she said, "You know, I know the smart way to build a career. You create an identifiable product." You reliably produce that product. People who like that product, you know, may take them a couple of books to find you, but once they do, they know what they're going to get. So they Mm. come back. Um, That would be the smart way to build a career. But she said it's it's not the fun way to build a career. So, you know, maybe you can think about being less successful and happier. That's an option too.
0: There's a risk involved in the kinds of projects you...
1: Yes, I think, and and a risk that um, that I have occasionally paid a price for. You know, my books have been um, of mixed success. It's not like I've gone from triumph to triumph. I've had a couple of books do very very well, and I've had a couple of books do very very badly. And
0: we were talking earlier. You said at the end of a book, there's lots of research. You put the, those books in a box, and and that moves moves away. Have you moved on? already? Is I
1: really have not I'm I'm trying to it's been, you know, I finished writing the book two years ago so it is long past time for me to be on to the next project But Does that say uh, something about this book? I think it does you know, I think this book um, drew uh, deeper on me that it, it, it in some ways um, Ursula Le Guin in a lovely quote about the book said it was you know, the book I was meant to write and and I think I feel that way. About it. I feel that connection to it. So, what does one write next when one has written the book one was meant to write? That's that's tricky.
0: Is that difficult for a writer? I mean, you live on, you live and work sort of on your on your own. It's a different, you know. There's no office to go to. You're it's you and your imagination and what you want to do next. Is that actually is that? Does that cause you a certain degree of misery?
1: It causes me your... a certain degree of panic over, you know, the fact that that I've not. Started the next book yet, but um, but not really. You know, I'm I'm in an extraordinarily privileged position as a writer because um, we live on my husband's paycheck. So if I make money, that's great. But you know, we're not doing without health care if if I don't, which in the U. S. is a real possibility for writers, a real problem. Um,
0: is Obama not the you know, cast has word, this changed? Word,
1: Trying to take care of it, uh, it's a work in progress. But you know, it'll. Um, I think Obamacare may have uh, a wonderful effect on American literature if writers are freed from the problem of health care. Who knows where their imaginations will take them?
0: What will happen next if there's no book? Is it just uh, more oh, I will more write another book. and uh... yes?
1: <laughs> I will drink Prosecco until I write another book. I will drink glass after glass. I will say to Heading myself, you will not stop drinking until you write, young lady. Thank you very much. Thank you. So you can quote Wordsworth and Fondell. I am impressed. Oh, and Star Wars. Star Wars. I had to watch that.